Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Follow along there. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the ribs the Lord God had taken from the man he put into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And from one of the last chapters... Of the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. All right. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together, and we thank you for the word that you've given us. And we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious tonight as we gather to study it, that you would uh, sharpen our minds to understand what you're saying to us, uh, soften our hearts, and press these words into reality, Lord, that our lives and our relationships might be transformed uh, for your glory and for the good of others. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. came to my attention, and probably the attention of many others this summer, that uh, two well-loved, in fact, beloved, romantic characters are deeply marked, have been deeply marked by mental illness. I'll explain. And as I go along and explain, uh, I am not poking fun at mental illness, okay? I'm taking that very seriously. Instead, this is a provocative look at the stories we tell ourselves about love and intimacy and romance. So, uh, I will begin to describe the characters, and it will take you all of about one sentence to figure it out. Okay? The first beloved romantic character is the heartwarming, young, adventurous teen who cuts a deal with a cephalopod, witch doctor, to transform her into a mute nudist so she can seduce a man from another species. Who is that? Ariel, the little mermaid. That is actually a pretty accurate description of what happens in that movie. Okay, and actually her uh, mental illness isn't that she's crazy, 
and flees her home and wants to become another species is that she's a closet hoarder. Go back and watch the movie. Uh, The second is the story of a beautiful, independent, headstrong bookworm who was unfairly ostracized by the other inhabitants of her little French village simply for being odd. She ends up befriending and falling in love with a beast before she knows he's secretly a human prince under a spell. This is supposed to show what a pure heart she has as she's able to look past appearances and love someone who is for who he is on the inside. In reality, Belle, and her personality disorder is a schizoid personality disorder, she would have actually preferred the candlesticks and uh, other objects to remain living uh, anthropomorphic teacups instead of real humans. And uh, she probably, if this diagnosis is correct, did not want the beast to become a real man um, because she was actually scared of romantic love. She prefers libraries, after all. And we're talking about here uh, the beloved Belle, so, um, now I'll tell you this story, not to, to ruin your childhood dreams and stories, um, and again, not to make fundamental illness, but to make a couple points. First, some people raise the question whether love, the desire to love another and be loved by another, is madness. And based on these stories, it's pretty close. Okay? Uh, and the second question is, and this is a little more serious, I think, how have these stories and stories like them Stories that we've told and heard and embraced at times, how they inform the way we think about relationships, the way we think about love and romance or dating. And I would say that we have uh, brought some of them into our lives and our way of thinking about relationships, and that has implications for us. What are those implications? And uh, I'm going to paint with big, big strokes here and, and, and say currently... If you were to survey folks about love, romantic love, relationships, you would find two ends of the continuum. On one end of the continuum is cynicism, i.e., love sucks. Okay? And um, there, there's just some people, by personality, that's where they are. And uh, some people, by circumstance. They didn't feel this way yesterday, but between yesterday and today, something bad happened, and today, love sucks. The cynic. On the other end of the extreme is the optimistic romantic that believes love is simply a matter of falling into love. It's that easy. And we're going to call that the romantic, or romanticism. And we'll come back to these two poles throughout the semester. Because they really are parts of a continuum where we tend to gravitate to by personality. Either the romantic or the centic. And uh, again, you can be somewhere in between. Often, you vacillate between the two depending on the day, the circumstance, the relationship. And it can feel like a, it can feel like a roller coaster. And the question I, I'm going to pose tonight and try to answer is, is there, isn't there some better way? Isn't there some better ride available than this crazy roller coaster of emotions between love sucks and it's so easy to fall in love? Um, is there another story that rescues us from this quagmire, this quicksand of unrealistic expectations that we've been fed? I meant to do this earlier. If you're a visual learner, I'm doing something new this semester. I have an outline for you. Who would like an outline? So, lots of visual learners. I should have done this a long time ago. Uh, I hope all the visual learners are on this side, because I only got two. Anyway, pass them around. And uh, what I want to say tonight, what our text confronts us with, is, is the proposition that if we want to be free, and I consider this a tyranny, this vacillation, this 
flip-flopping between cynicism and uh, romanticism, if we want to be free from the tyranny of that, of that way of thinking, then we have to understand and embrace God's design plan for relationships. The idea is that God has designed us and relationships for a purpose, and we need to understand what that is and embrace it instead of the stories that we've created in our own hearts or that our culture has fed us. Okay? And, and this design plan of God's has, has two components. So we're only talking about two things tonight. And, and uh, not coincidentally, there are the two questions that you're always asking while you're in college. Uh, the first is vocational. What should I do? What am I doing and what should I do? The vocational question. What am I called to do? What am I supposed to do? And the second is relational. Who am I supposed to be with? And God's design plan for relationships entails both those things. The vocational. What should I do? And the relational. Who should I be and who should I be with? So we're going to talk first about the vocational. And uh, we're confronted with this very early on in Scripture. Uh, we don't read far in Genesis before we have a job. So it's pretty nice. I mean, you come to Pitt, you spend thousands of dollars, you, you wrestle over what to do, and then you might not get a job. Scripture, you're created, you get a job right away. It's pretty awesome. So uh, we read in Genesis chapter 1 that uh, God creates mankind in verse 26. And... Um, says in verse 26, let them, being mankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea. Let them rule. And uh, their vocation, their calling, is to rule. And we read in chapter 2, I believe, verse 15, when Adam's put into the garden, that uh, they are to work the garden and to keep it. And, and gardening may sound boring to you. Um, You've got this little plot of dirt. Uh, the Garden of Eden was this gorgeous, beautiful thing. And, and I believe... Adam's job and Eve's job was to take the blessed nature of that original garden and not just to maintain it, but to expand it. And, and you sort of get a hint at that in the first chapter of Genesis in uh, verse 27 and 28. Uh, in verse 28, when God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, they live in this garden, but they're supposed to fill the earth. And I think the implication is they're supposed to take the blessedness, the beauty of this place with them as they go. Their job is to rule in such a way that they extend God's blessing into the rest of the world. Now, Scripture has, theologically, a term for this, and it's called kingdom. It's, it's the reign of God, the rule of God, ex expanding, extending. And I'm sort of stretching things here to make this fit. Uh, but really, what we're seeing here in the first chapter of Genesis and the second chapter of Genesis is that there's a plan. It's a plan for progress. And I read the end of Revelation for a couple of reasons. Because when you read Revelation 21, what you find is a city. A city. We go in chapter 1 of Genesis from a garden to chapter 21, a city. That's by design. That's not an accident. It's God's plan to grow things, to bring blessing uh, to the world. And to move things out. And that's our call even us, and you're thinking, how in the world, I, I just want a job. I just want, I just want to sit in the corner and get paid. Well, that's good, I understand. At the same time, the call is more than that for you. Uh, you're called to be a part of God's kingdom and extend his blessing into the world. And you don't get to do this any way you want to. We see this pretty quickly also in chapter 2. You have to reign rightly. You don't get to decide how to run this thing. God hasn't handed you the keys to the kingdom and said, it's all yours, do what you want. Uh, you're under authority. You're entrusted. This is pretty awesome, okay? There's only one world 
There's only one garden. There's only one man at the time, and God says, it's yours. Tend it, keep it, make it better, and make it grow. That's an awesome responsibility, okay? That's amazing. It's an amazing call, and he was equipped for it. He was given the ability and the dignity to do that. It's pretty cool. And yet he wasn't given the ability autonomously. He was a man under authority. And the same is true of us. We've been equipped and called to do a great work, to extend God's kingdom into the world. Uh, we don't get to do it any way we want to. We have to do it rightly. And what do I mean by rightly? And now, and Scripture says a lot about that. I'm just going to say one simple thing from these early chapters. Reigning rightly means reigning in right relationships. Adam is still in the right relationship with his God. He's under God. He serves under God. God's the king. It's his kingdom. I serve under him. And for Adam, his job to reign was to reign over the animals, to care for them, to tend them. That's a right relationship. With his wife, to love her and embrace her and care for her, that's a right relationship. The entire earth for which he was responsible, that's a relationship. Everything was relational. It was all relational. And that's what Adam was called to do. And in an extent, that's, that's, to an extent, that's what we're called to do as well. We're called to do something great, to be a part of God's kingdom. What exactly does this have to do with relationships? Some of you may be asking. Get on to the dating, marriage stuff. How do I find my husband? How do I snare him? Um, well, you have to wait. That's like week 10 um, or something. Um, but this does have implications for your relationship. And I'll give you three. Uh, for some guys who are here tonight thinking, like, my hope was that this relationship thing would bring lots of girls to the room, and that's all I anticipate getting out of this semester. Because, I mean, relationships, I mean, come on, that's like emotional, like I talk about my feelings. Ah, all right, let me, let me, let me ease things for you just a little bit. You've got to do something, too. Okay, God's design plan was not that we would just sit around and talk. Okay? That's great. We should do that. God designed us to do something too. He called us to extend his kingdom. This is a remarkable thing. Okay? So there. Hope you guys feel better. And you ambitious alpha male, alpha female. (laughs) Sorry. Alpha females. All of us. I mean, we're a doing culture, so we'll get to that in a minute. Um, So that's the first implication. The second, and this is really important, this is why kingdom is important for your relationships. If your life and your experience isn't more than just about you, if your life and your experience isn't more than just about you, you will take everything in your life, your relationships, your job, and you will bend them to serve you. You will bend them to serve you. And you will try to squeeze life and joy and purpose out of those things. And you know what? You will kill them. They're not meant to do that. I mean, these are good things. I'm not saying you shouldn't have them. You're supposed to have them. But you're supposed to relate to them rightly. And if you relate to them wrongly, you will kill them. So, uh, kingdom is a gift for you. It's a calling, an all-encompassing call that helps put all these things in your life in its proper place and perspective. Okay? And lastly, the last implication for why this matters for your relationships. You may not have noticed, but our culture values product. You don't get the question here because you're in a university setting and people would be like, what do you mean? But the question of our culture, the first question of people's mouth beyond what is your name and sometimes before that is, what do you do? Sometimes we ask, what do you do even before we ask the name? What we're asking is, 
could you tell me what you do? Is that going to assign a price tag of worth to you? Uh, and if we ask someone, what do you do? And they say, I don't do anything. Then we'll ask, what are you studying? The implication being, well, if you're not doing something, I hope you're studying to do something. And if they're not studying either and they're not doing anything, then you secretly begin to ask yourself, do you do anything worth anything? I'm taking us into our judgmental, sad hearts. We value product in our culture more than personhood, more than being. And in kingdom, this idea of kingdom is a healthy correction. Okay, We're supposed to do something, but we're also supposed to be something. We're supposed to be certain kinds of people. We were created to be these kinds of people that extend God's kingdom into the world and in a right relationship with God and creation. Okay? If you don't have a healthy understanding of kingdom and understand that you're doing everything you do to God's glory for the good of that kingdom, what you'll often end up doing, not always, but often end up doing, is building your own kingdom, your mountain of achievements and accomplishments and honors, your busyness. And you'll parade those out in front of you as a means of projection. This is really who I am. Look at all the good stuff I do and have done. And you hide your real self behind that. Because behind, you're still the fearful, insecure person. I mean, look at all the good stuff I've done. Look at all my straight A's. Uh, all, look at all the wonderful things I've done. We don't, we're, we're, we're afraid to be known. And I, and I need to tell you this. Being valued for your stuff... Being valued for your product is not the same as being loved for who you are. I think deep down you know that. You don't always want to believe that. You've been graded your whole life up to this point. Uh, And the affirmations come with the grades. And it's hard for you to realize, but as you grow older you realize, I am more than what I do. I am more than what I do. I'm more than a grade. So, uh, the design plan of God for you and your relationships is vocational. And you're thinking, wow, that was a lot. How long is this thing going to last? Not that much longer. Second is relational. The second aspect, the second component of uh, God's design plan for you is relational. And we see this in the text as well. In chapter 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Did you catch the weird thing going on there? Then God, if you know grammar, that's a singular thing thing, noun, said, let us, first person plural, make God and make man in our image, plural. And what I, what I wanted to point out here is that we live in a relational reality. And, and behind it all is a divine reality, a divine relational reality. We see here in God himself, who creates all things, a plurality of persons in relationship. They're talking to themselves, the persons of the Trinity, saying, let's do this thing. Let's create. Let's bring forth life and goodness in mankind. There was a relational reality at the heart of the universe before anything else. Father, Son, and Spirit existing in perfect love. We live in a relational reality. It was always that way. It will always be this way. It does not always seem that way. And this is true for humans as well. We see this in verse 27, that uh, we live in this relational reality, this world. In verse 27, God creates man in his own image. Okay, you are relational beings, not because you have friends. You're relational beings because God made you like him. And he's a relational being. He's a person with a personality in relationship 
with the other members of the Trinity, with his creation, with his people. You are relational because God is relational. You live in a relational universe. So we, people, are like God in that we are in relationship. And like God, there's a plurality of persons, there's diversity. This all comes from the nature of God. All of reality is relational. That's not all I have to say. You're thinking, well, that's great philosophy. Uh, So what? Uh, What's the end? The end here is that God desires for us to have real intimacy. That we really would know God and know others well. And and we see this hinted at, or actually it's not even hinted at, it's shamelessly paraded before our eyes at the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2, after Adam has finished conquering all of creation in some ways by putting a name on it all, um, God brings to Adam his wife, Eve. We'll talk more about this in upcoming weeks. I can't say everything here that I would like to say. Uh, what I want to say is pretty clear in verses 23 through 25. And the man says, I don't know, y'all don't have a Bible. It's not up there either. Uh, it's, not, it's okay, you don't have to do it. Uh, I, don't, I can't read this appropriately because this is joyful exultation. Uh, in the original language, this is joyful, heart-splitting exultation. Uh, this, at last, is bone of my bone. I've been waiting. I've been looking. Here it is. This is what I've been waiting for. This is joy. This is joy that we seldom experience in life. This is what God desires for us in our relationships. Uh, what else? In verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That shall be one flesh. That's intimacy. But when there's such an integration of the persons that you are in some sense in God's eyes one, that is intimacy. That's intimacy that we long for, but it also scares us to death. I understand that. And lastly, in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um... I'm from the South, I grew up in the South, and in the South there's two ways to say naked. Either way, if you are naked, it's sort of embarrassing. So the way of being naked is you're before your doctor, you get to take your clothes off, and it's sort of uncomfortable. You've all been there. It's all it's uncomfortable for everybody. We're vulnerable. We're at most vulnerable when we're naked. Uh, even emotionally, mentally, we feel naked. And we feel vulnerable when we're naked. So when you're naked, naked, you're vulnerable. And then there's, in the South, there's naked. And naked is when you're naked and you shouldn't be. You're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Um, this is bad naked. Um, and that's also shameful and, and vulnerable. And here we have is this portrait of this first couple. At their most vulnerable, and there's no shame. And you might be thinking, well, I'm the most secure person in the world. I don't care what I look like. No, you don't understand. It's not just about the body. Vulnerability is the ability to see into and through someone. And to know they're doing that to you, and to be completely okay with it, and to feel safe. It's the ability to be perfectly well known without shame. That's what they had. It was amazing. And that was God's design for us in human relationships, especially between husband and wife. But something like that was also the God's plan for his relationship with his people. And we see this in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, at the very end of history. So, let me review. The beginning of the world, God creates stuff. He gives man 
The ability to extend the kingdom, there's relationships, there's marriage, there's intimacy. At the end of the book, in Revelation 21, we find the new heavens and the new earth. And what do we find? We find a kingdom. We find a relationship. We find marriage. We find intimacy. Reality is intrinsically, inherently, always relational. God wants to be close to his people. In 21, 1 through 3, starting in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's, that's theological language for people. Okay? New Jerusalem is God's people. You have to take my word for this. If you don't believe me, we'll go study it some other time. Um, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. All your sin and shame, washed, forgiven, cleansed, and you are perfectly beautified and brought near to God. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be their God. This is God's plan. He wants to be near. He wants to be near you. He wants to be close to you. This is God's desire. He wants his people. God is deeply relational. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be known by him. He wants you to stop hiding. He wants you to live the kind of lives that are free from fear and insecurity. The question is, do you want that? And I know your answer. Your answer is like, yes, no, yes, no. And we have a hard time with that because we really want it, but we know it hurts because there's so much sin and shame in our lives. And we fear being rejected. And it's messy. Relationships are messy. Our heart, our culture uh, tells us this story that love sucks. Now, and I hope I paint a picture for you here, tonight at least, that says relationships don't suck. Okay? Uh, we live in a sinful, broken world where they often go bad. But this is not the way it should be. And it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, where We live in this culture where love either sucks or it's so easy you just fall into love. The romantic view. Is there some other story? Embrace God's story for relationships. He created you for real relationships of intimacy with Him and with others. Uh, there's a song I really like. This is always dangerous because I'm twice your age. and Rule something out here that will embarrass me forever. But uh, since we're talking about vulnerability, we'll go ahead and do this. Um, I'll just sing. A, sing. I'm not going to sing. That'll be the last time you come. <laughs> uh, share a couple of these verses. Uh, disappear from your hometown. Now, this is going to. This is going to. This is your story. Some of you that are coming to school or coming back to school. Disappear from your hometown. Go and find the people that you know. Show them all your good parts. Beat down the bad ones when they start to show. Yeah. Uh, it's really easy for us to hide all the stuff we don't want people to see. And I'm not saying we should parade all of our lies before the watching world. Uh, go with a woman, a pretty girl that you never met. That kind of uh, thing is certainly on the minds of many people here today. Uh, what am I going to meet? Well, maybe I'm not ready to get married and find the one, but certainly wouldn't mind a little companionship at this time in my life. Uh, go with a woman, a pretty girl that you never met. Make sure she knows you love her well, but don't make any promises. And the chorus reads like this. The weight of lies will bring you down, follow you to every town. Because nothing happens here that doesn't happen there. When you run, make sure you run to something and not away from. Because lies don't need an aeroplane to chase you down. 
And what the song is saying is, we believe lies, we embrace lies, we live lies about relationships. We're hiding stuff. We don't want people to know us. We're afraid. And somehow we still think, I can, I can love people well and be known and loved. We, we really want it, even though we live lies. And the song is saying, those things are going to chase you and catch you. You are who you are. You are who you are. Behind all your mountains of achievements and honors and accomplishments, you are who you are, which is a wonderful person created in God's image for relationship, for extending His kingdom, yet yet insecure, marked by sin and shame. So, is there another story for you? Do you have to live this crazy roller coaster of hiding and cynicism, whether you're cynical or romantic? <laughs> the result is pretty much the same. You're going to end up lonely, bitter, angry. <laughs> I mean, on any given day, it might be better than that, but you'll spend a lot of days like that. Is there an alternative? There is. It's a different story. Embrace the story God has written for you. There's a purpose that's big, and you should be, you should be about that. The purpose of extending God's kingdom. That everything's relational. And that when you embrace those things and embrace that story with all its mess, you can be who you really are. Because this is what's crazy. God knows you. He knows you. Completely. And He loves you. Enough to send His Son to die for you. That's the kind of love that sets you free. To be who you really are. And to begin to transform your relationships of hiding and insecurity and self-serving narcissism into a real relationship of vulnerability and love. Okay, Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your great work on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the goodness of uh, your own time, out of the depth of the love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit, you created. And you created this world a relational place with all the joys and blessings and possibilities of relationships. And yet it's often the case, it's surely the case, that we know the seedy underbelly of that reality. Um, all the sin and shame and insecurity and hurt and disappointment and brokenness. Uh, Lord, may we become a people that's marked, uh, that are marked by your love, that uh, are willing to have the stories of our heart rewritten by you, by your love for us, um, by the story you have for us, and by the way you want us to live in relationship with one another. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.